Please rise as we read God's word together. I don't know which one we got going on first here. Uh, Let's read from Matthew 6, um, and we will be reading from verse 7 to 15. Hear the reading of God's word. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you have told us the grass will wither, it will fade, it will die. But your word will stand true and firm forever. So uphold that promise in our lives here today. May you carry the words of mine to these people here. May you guide them to their hearts, to their lives. You would watch over these words mold and shape all of us to be more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Cigarette smoke. A brown leather jacket with some woolly fur on the collar. An Iowa Hawkeye golf cart and big Cadillacs. I miss my dad. These are the things I think of when I think of my dad. There's a lot more. This is what I think of initially when I think of my dad. As you know, I'm a big Denver Broncos fan, and so was my dad. He was probably a bigger Iowa Hawkeye fan than Broncos fan, but nonetheless. How do you think of your dads? As a Broncos fan, um, one of my favorite Denver Broncos was Peyton Manning, not only because he's a great Denver Bronco, but arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks, if not the greatest quarterback of all time. Peyton is famous for many things, and maybe the one thing he's most famous for may not even be the prowess on the football field, but perhaps I would make an argument that he's really famous for one small, about 60-second video clip when Peyton was about two or three years old. Maybe some of you have seen this clip or heard this clip, but if you don't know, Peyton wasn't the first Manning in the family to be an all-pro quarterback. His father, Archie, who played for the New Orleans Saints, was also a very accomplished NFL quarterback. And when Peyton was very small, about two or three years old, there was a reporter interviewing his dad, Archie. And the reporter got down onto one knee and got down to Peyton's level, and he asked Peyton, who's your favorite football player? And Peyton Manning in his deep southern Louisiana accent as a two or three year little boy says, my dad. Isn't that what we like to think of our dads? 
We like to think of them in that way, don't we? As the greatest football player. Or how many little boys on the, on the playground say, well, yeah, my, beat it, my dad can beat up your dad. When we're small, this is how we like to think of our dads. Or even as they've passed, we think in fond memories of our fathers because that is who they are for us. This is, light, this is why we like to think of our dads. We, we think of our dads as that one person who can actually beat up any other dad of our friend. Because our dad is the biggest, he's the strongest, and he's the best. Our dads can conquer the world when we're small. Our dads can do anything. And perhaps if you're a little girl, then your dad is the greatest and the first love that, and shows you what love is, and he's the one that protects you and watches over you and gives you presents when you're sick. These are how we tend to think of our dads. How we view our father, our earthly fathers, has a tremendous impact on how we view our heavenly father, isn't it? So if that's really true, then let's be honest, not everybody thinks of our fathers in such a great light. So how do we wrestle with this? And so as we approach the Lord's Prayer and the opening statements of the Lord's Prayer, there's some of us that have a really easy way into that prayer of saying, I can connect with that title. I can connect with that opening statement very, very easily. And it's, it's actually an endearing thing. But not all of us can do that. Because we have broken families, we have broken lives, and Sometimes our fathers just weren't the best fathers. And so how is it that we wrestle with this thing called father? Can both be true at the same time? How is it that we can all be able to call upon our God as our father? Even though we acknowledge the fact that fathers can be good and fathers can be bad, the Lord still uses this illustration. He still uses this title. He still tells us, this is what I want you to call me. Why is that? Because there's something special, excuse me, there's something special about that term father, isn't there? No matter how we view our own earthly fathers, there's still something attached to that term father. Because we do all know, I think, in some terms, what it means to be a good father and what it means to be a bad father. But the term father is a very intimate term. It's not president, it's not CEO. It's not even pastor, it's not brother, it's not sister, it's not principal, it's not deacon or elder, it's not governor, mayor, it's father, dad. So what is it that we think of our father in heaven? How is it? You see, the unique thing about the word father is that it's given to one person. We have lots of principles in our life. We have lots of governors in our lives. We have lots of mayors in our lives. We have lots of presidents in our lives. But we have one father. We have one earthly father. And there's something attached to that that's unique to any other name, isn't there? And so it's in that intimacy, in that uniqueness, that the Lord says, pray like this, our Father, because He's our one Father. The name 
Father carries something along with it, doesn't it? It has an attachment to it. It's a, there's a distinction that's fundamental to the very name and title. To be a father, you must have something. Now, this isn't rocket science here. It doesn't take super, you have to take a PhD in logic to figure out what this is. To be a father, you have to have something. You have to have at least one what? Child. To be a father, you have to have a child. Boy or girl, one or 20. To be a father, you have to have children. So at the risk of being overly simple, the Lord teaches us to pray our Father. It means what? By definition, we are His children. Pretty simple logic, right? If God says, call me Father, intrinsically, inherently, by definition, that means we are His children. So then we have another set of questions. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does that actually mean? Again, another one of these terms that we think of that we know that in our Rolodex, if you remember those, some kids don't even know what a Rolodex is, but that just came off my tongue. To go back into our database, to Google search, what does it mean to be a child of God? There's a great deal to that opening statement of our Father. There's a lot to the reality of what that means. But I want to recognize some facts here this morning. I want to recognize the the fact that we are children of God, but also to recognize and to focus on the relationship between a father and a child. And that's something special, something important. So that is where we'll be headed this morning. Diving into the understanding of what it means to be a child of God. So the question I have for us this morning is just that. What does it mean to be a child of God? If we have a father and he's in heaven... And that Father is the Lord our God. What does it mean to be a child of God? According to Romans, it means at least three things. I'm going to use that section of Romans chapter 8 to answer the question in this way. To be a child of God means that we are adopted. It means that we have benefits. And it means that we have a reward. So to be a child of God means that we're adopted. It means we have some benefits. And it means we have a reward. And we get this all from Romans chapter 8 this morning. So to be a child of God is an important and invaluable gift that the Lord has given to those who have received the Spirit that Paul is talking about. Paul, in this letter to the church at Rome, says that this is a gift given to all of those who are led by the Spirit to live a life by the Spirit. There is a distinction made here that we often just skim right over, isn't there? We, we don't like to, to enter into a couple of these sections in Romans 8 here this morning. But it's important. Being a child of God means that you have been transformed into one thing to another. So what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean that we have a transforming of intellect? That we have this transformation of our minds? That we're just given a bunch of stuff to know? No, to be a child of God means that we have a transformation from one thing to another by identity. That we're actually, all of us, our whole personhood, everything about us is transformed from one thing into another. This is what it means to be a child of God, but how does that happen? How are we transformed all of our lives? How, how, how is all of us transformed into something that was to something that is different? What does that look like? As a child of God... You are different than what you were before. Being a child of God means that you have been transformed. I've already said this a couple of different ways. 
You are no longer what you were, but rather you are something that God has made you. Here in Romans, Paul is saying that the children of God have been transformed from pursuing a life that follows after the things of the world, or the flesh, as he calls it, pursuing the things that the world says, here's your carrot, here's your benefit, here's your reward, like power, money, greed, alcohol, drugs, sex, all of these things that we so quickly run after. Paul is saying you were once that kind of person that pursued these things with all of you have, but as a child of God, you've been transformed into pursuing him. Pursuing a life that flows from the Spirit into a person that loves and pursues the things of the Spirit. In other words, if you were once this, and now you're this, you've been given a new identity, a new person, a new outlook, a new life. How does that happen? Because we're adopted. We're adopted into this family. Not only does he transform us and make us into something new, He gives us a new identity by placing us into a new family. And he does that through adoption. So let's take a hard look at adoption this morning. I don't want to sugarcoat anything this morning, but I also don't want to be insensitive to anything this morning. So adoption is a bit of a tricky subject for many of us in this church. But it's also a wonderful topic for all of us. But the Lord still chooses to use this illustration to show us who He is and who we are. That He is our Father, and we've been adopted into His family. So I have in my pocket here, and now I have this. This is a quarter. And there's not two quarters here. There's only one quarter. However, and you've heard this illustration before, but on this quarter... On one side, I see a head of an old guy, uh, very little hair, kind of poofy in the back, bald, it's probably white, it's silver on here, but you get the idea. So on one side, it's got the picture of an old guy. On the other side, it's got a picture of a bat, believe it or not. But there's only one coin. One side is a bat, one side's a head. Heads or tails but only one coin. But there are two stories to this coin, and there are two stories to this thing called adoption. You see, because in this story of adoption, two things are true at the very same time. Two distinctly different things, but all on the same coin. The one thing is about adoption is that there is intrinsically and inherently hurt and pain, suffering, Trauma, difficulty, brokenness, that's true. I don't want to sugarcoat that this morning because that's the reality of that situation. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that inherent to adoption is something else. There's joy, there's hope, there's love, there's caring, there's kindness. Forgiveness, mercy, and a new identity. Both are true at the very same time. Both are true for those that are adopted in this room, into physical families here in this church, and to parents who have adopted kids. 
Both are true. And the Lord says, call me Father, and I'm going to give you an illustration of something called adoption. Because the two sides of the coin are true in our lives too. In our lives, as being adopted into God's family, inherent to who we are, is sin, brokenness, hurt, tragedy, pain, trauma, abuse, all of these things. Each one of us has a story of some semblance of any one or more of those. God understands. But the same side of the coin, God is loving, He's caring, He's gracious, He's merciful, He's kind, there is love. Both are true at the same time. So next time you think of a coin, or you go to put a coin in some machine to buy a gumball, because that's about all coins are worth anymore, I think. Think of the Lord. Think of two sides of the coin, what it means to be adopted into this family. Adoption, at its core, is a situation that, as I've said, has hurt and pain involved with it. It has tragedy woven into the reality and the fabric of the person who is adopted. The situation that the person was born into is defined by any number of tragedies. Neglect or abuse or unfortunate circumstances. The child is essentially left outside. Left outside the city, sometimes literally. That child or that person is looking for existence. It's looking for meaning. Looking for an identity. Who am I? What am I? How do I, how do I fit into this world? What, what's going on in my life? This doesn't make any sense to me. How do I fit? Where's my place? What do I do? Who am I? There are many in this little section of God's creation that understand that all too well. And so I want to be careful this morning and not be insensitive to the reality of what this situation looks like. But I do want us to understand the reality of what adoption actually is. It's wrapped in all of these heartaches. But what wraps the heartaches is the love, is the grace, is the mercy. So what we're reading here in Romans 8 is that the Lord is making the connection between what we know and understand as adoption and the adoption process, even in this church, and we know it well in this church, of what the reality is. God wants us to use that illustration and say, this is how he thinks of us. And that he now takes us and adopts us into his family. And what we're reading here in Romans 8 is that this is what the Lord wants us to think of, to say, call me now your Father. Call me Father in heaven. The reality of the situation that we, in our sin, are indeed far off. Paul says that to the church in Ephesus. In our sin and our misery, we were far off. We are left on the outside of the city. We are the ones that are neglected. We are the ones that are enemies of the Lord God Almighty. We're nowhere near God in our sin and misery. He can't be in the same vicinity as sin. And we're left to our own devices. We're left to our own demise, to our own misery, to our own suffering. 
And so in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, our stories too are then wrought and identified inherently with hurt and pain, sorrow and tears, sometimes abuse, neglect. But the amazing thing about adoption is that the person who was far off, the person that was left alone, is no longer alone, is no longer far off. The person did not have a home, now has a home. The person did not have an identity, now through what the Lord has done, is given an identity. When you adopt a child, you go through all kinds of legal processes. You've got to sign tons and tons of paperwork. You've got to get judges involved. You've got to get courts involved. You've got to stamp a bunch of papers. You got to, why? Why do we do all this? Why do we go through court procedures? Why do we have lawyers get involved? Why do we have judges get involved? Because we want to make it certain. We want to make this transformation, this new identity, certain in the court of law since that no one can take our children from us if we adopt a child. Nothing can take them from us because we've gone through this process to say, this child is mine. And there's nothing that can take him away or her away from me because we've gone through this legal process. And a judge can't take him or her away. So all what Jesus does for us is he dies, he goes to the grave, and he rises again from the dead. And we're now justified because of that. So as we stand before the Lord, our God, who is a judge, we're given the stamp that says, not guilty. And the stamp that we receive is that of the family of God. We're given a new identity. So just as the child was, let's just use an illustration here. Once the child was a smith before, after she's adopted, she becomes a Jones. She's no longer a smith ever again. Cannot be a smith ever again. Because the legal process says she's no longer a smith, now she becomes a Jones. So when the Lord adopts us, we're no longer smiths. We're no longer not a part of God's family, but we're a part of God's family, and we're Joneses. We're His. And in the Gospel of John, we said nothing can take that away from us. We can't not be taken from God's family because of the legal process of the cross, of the death, of the resurrection, of our justification. We are God's. He's adopted us into His family, and He says, you are my child. You are my, and I am your father. Ephesians chapter 2, we're given another wonderful illustration of how this works but now, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, who you were who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's through the death and the resurrection that Jesus, through His blood, His sacrifice, breaks down the walls of hostility, breaks down the barrier that between what was an identity and now your new identity is now a new identity because of what the Father has done through Jesus Christ. He gave up His only Son in order that you would be a son. He gave up His only Son so that you would be His daughter. Just allow that to settle into your system for a second. He gave up His only Son, Jesus Christ. His only child. So He can call you His child. This is what adoption is. And he gives us a new identity.
And with this identity, we're told in Romans that as a child of God, as we're adopted into this family, we're given some benefits. And that benefit is that we're now an heir. We're an heir to the kingdom, an heir to the royal family. The queen mother passed away this week. I don't know a lot about the royal family. I'm not going to pretend to. But what I did see this morning is on some little blurb, they, they marked down all of the, uh, the inheritance of the royal family, and there's more royal family than I could ever even... I don't I even know how many people... But they, they, and I don't know if it's true or not, and I'm not even going to give you the figures, but there had to be 10 or 15 people, give or take. But here's a, someone received a million dollars here. Someone received $10 million here. Someone received $15 million here. Just because the queen mother passed away, the inheritance gets passed down. Millions upon millions of dollars is passed on to the royal family. That would be nice. It would be nice to be a part of the royal family, right? Because you have that kind of benefit. You have that kind of inheritance. But what we're seeing here in Romans 8 is there's something far more grand than that type of inheritance. If we are children, then we are heirs. If we are heirs, then we are heirs with Christ. In other words, if we are children of God, and Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus has all the benefits of the Lord Almighty, then we, by being adopted into the family of God, are given all the benefits that Jesus has. That should blow our minds. That Jesus, the very Son of God, gives us everything that he has. All of his worth, all of his identity, everything that he has. So what are these benefits of being an heir to the Father in heaven? Honestly, there are too many to count. Too many to examine and develop this morning. But what I want us to see is a bit more nuanced, but perhaps the most fundamental to what it means to be adopted and to be an heir of the royal family of God, to be joint heirs with Christ. We can say that we have the assurance of salvation as being joint heirs. That's true. We can say that we have the assurance of justification as an heir of God. That's true. Sanctification as being an heir, but there's something that is even more impactful, more intimate, and more special than even these things. And it's directly connected to adoption. If you will, if you could turn your Bibles to me, with me to, to Matthew chapter 17. I'm not going to read all of chapter 17, but I want to um, just put your finger there, and I want to just summarize what's going. And some of you may even know what's happening in in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 17, there's a, there's a, there's a trans- transformational moment in the, in the Gospel of Matthew at this particular time. Jesus, here in this chapter, takes three guys with him. He takes Peter, James, and his brother John. He takes them to the top of a mountain. And I don't know how long the trek is, but they walk up this mountain, they walk up this mountain, they reach the top of the mountain. And there at the top of the mountain, something amazing happens. Jesus was transfigured before them. What does that mean? Jesus was transfigured before them. His face began to shine in radiant glory. And his clothes became white as light. And then Moses and Elijah appeared before them. This is an incredible moment. Here, what's happening? Here, the very glory of the Lord is shining on Jesus himself. Jesus on top of the mountain is showing these three guys, Peter, James, and John, what it looks like to receive the glory of God, to have that shine down on him. And they're amazed. And his clothes are even white. And then, and then, 
a bright cloud begins to descend on the mountain. So I'm freaking out if I'm, top of the, if I'm on top of the mountain, if I'm Peter, James, and John. This guy I know, Jesus, who I love and care for, now his face is shining with the glory of God. His, his clothes become white as snow. Two dead guys appear. And then this cloud comes down onto the mountain. This is something out of some strange movie, but yet here in Matthew 17, this is what happens. And out of this cloud booms a voice. And what does that voice say? about the guy who the glory is shining on, about Jesus, the Lord, the God, the Father of Jesus, and our our Father in heaven says what? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. What is he saying? I love this guy more than anybody else. I am pleased in this one. And my glory shines upon this one. So what does it have to do with us being heirs with Jesus? Again, I don't think it takes too much logical gymnastics to be able to connect the dots. If we receive all the benefits of Jesus Christ and we're heirs with Jesus Christ, that glory that shines on Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us is now the same glory that shines upon you and your life. That same glory that makes Jesus' clothes turn white, that radiance of God's glory, now shines on you because we are adopted. And Paul says we're heirs with Jesus. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. And everything that Jesus has, we have. So now when the Lord looks at you, he doesn't see the hurt and the pain. He doesn't see the trauma. Doesn't see the misery. He sees Jesus. And the voice that comes from the cloud that says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We just went through a whole thing that says we're adopted as children of God, and we're heirs with Jesus. So because of what Jesus has done for you in his death and his resurrection, he says to Ryan Arkema, Ryan, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Mm. He says the same thing to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are well, he is well pleased with you. So what does it mean to be an heir of our Father in heaven? We receive his love. We receive him. It's not some abstract thing. It's not some nebulous thing, but we actually receive him. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Because of the Father's love for Christ, the Father has adopted us into the royal family making us joint heirs with Christ. We are beloved of the Father because He is beloved of the Father, and we ought never to forget that. He is the eternal object of the Father's affection. He's talking about Jesus. And we are the Father's gifts of love to His Son. We are adopted by the Father in Christ, and the Father loves us because He first loved Christ. This is what it means to be an heir, to be a child of God, is that we're loved in the same way that the Father loves Jesus. Friends, if that's not good news, there is no good news. This is what the Lord says to you this morning. This is why he says to us, pray our Father in heaven. 
But it's not done. Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us more good stuff. He says you are adopted, you are an heir, and you also get a reward. What's the reward? The reward is that we get glorification. Holy smokes. But then you say, what's glorification? Another one of these Christianese words, right? Because of that, we do get this reward. Paul says that if we're adopted, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, then we are also glorified. But there's a bit tucked in here that maybe we shouldn't touch on or don't want to touch in because it's just confusing or hard and I'm not quite sure we should go there. Right? Isn't when we kind of skirt around some of these words. It's we receive this glorification if we suffer. We're glorified after we suffer. Isn't that normally how we would read that? Isn't that how we would normally take that in? It says, provided that we suffer with Christ. So let's just explore the context a little bit here. So we've just said to, as we've said for the last few minutes, the context is this. We're adopted not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Right? We're heirs not because of what we have done, but because Jesus and what he's accomplished. We're loved because the Lord God loves Jesus first, and we're heirs with Christ, and that's why he loves us. So then if we say, well, we have to suffer in order to really know what it means to be Christian— that doesn't fit within the context. Because it's talking about everything Jesus has done for us is why we're adopted, why we're heirs, why we're in this family. Tracking with me? It's not about our suffering. We're connected with Jesus. We're in the family because of Jesus. We're adopted because of Jesus. And Jesus is what? The suffering servant. We're glorified because Jesus suffered on our behalf. Not that we have to be these depressed, awful, with our chins down Christians saying, well, it's better for me to be sad. Because Paul, in the, in the letter to Rome, says that we need to suffer in order to really know what it means to be Christian. That's not true. Jesus already suffered your sufferings. He is the suffering servant. He is the one that suffered everything that we need to suffer. He took the nails that were meant for me. He took the crown that was meant for you. He took the grave that was meant for all of us upon himself. He says, you don't have to do that. I've done it already. I've suffered your suffering. And you are glorified because of what Jesus has done. This is what this means. And because of that, we have a reward. And so go back to Matthew 17 if you still have your fingers there. Once again, um, we're at the top of the mountain. On this mountain, the glory of the Lord shone upon our Savior Jesus Christ. His clothes became white like light. This then is what we receive in glorification. This same glory that shines on Jesus now shines on us. But this isn't something that we get just as individuals. This is a glorification that we receive upon the culmination of Jesus' work of restoration. When Jesus returns again, He glorifies His people as one body. If you could turn with me, if you want to flip to the end of the story, to the vision in Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 22, it says these words to us. It's a vision that uh, the, at the end of time, right? When Jesus does return and what that looks like. We're given an insight into what the reward of glorification actually is. So Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now verse 4 is what I want us to hear. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is our reward? The glory of the Lord shining upon us, and him stamping his name of being an heir and adopted into his family is now ours forever and ever and ever and ever. This is what it means to be glorified. The same glory that's shown on Jesus on the top of that mountain is now yours because of what Jesus has done. This should blow our minds. So when we pray, when we pray, our Father, all of this and so much more is wrapped up into two small words. Our Father. This is what He does for us. And that name is a name above every name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.